This is Intune, the in-series podcast, opening up to you your own in-series opera that speaks, theater that sings, an oasis of intimate, innovative, and inspiring ideas through music, theater, art, and opera. I'm your host, Timothy Nelson, Artistic Director of In-Series, and I'm recording this on the evening of March 18th, 2020, tucked away in the far reaches of the clothes closet in my apartment in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood of Washington, D.C., I'm here in the closet because two days ago was the last day that I and the other members of the in-series staff team were allowed into the Source Theater building where we have our offices. The building has been closed indefinitely and we were asked to take anything from the office that could be needed in the coming weeks while it's closed. As you can imagine, that was a lot to do and in the process I forgot to grab the microphone which I usually use to record these podcasts. That means I'm tucked away in the closet and I'll resist any coming out of the closet jokes and that I need to apologize for the audio quality of this recording. It also means, of course, that we are living in strange times, my friends. Oh, brave new world, as Miranda says to Prospero in Shakespeare's The Tempest. I've been thinking about, during this growing storm, the role that we play as artists and arts organizations during this time. And I think the greatest dangers that we face during a time like this are actually fear and isolation. They're dangers that come from within. And what we offer as arts makers is an antidote, perhaps the antidote to dispelling both of these. We've canceled the remainder of our in-series 2019-2020 Lean In series which means, of course, our final production of Rigoletto and our annual Gallo, which has been postponed until the fall when we'll have entered into the 2020-2021 season. In this time of challenge, there is perhaps also the opportunity for reflection, yes, but also for action on the many things that we never actually have the time to do, no matter how well-intentioned we are. One of those for me is to keep up with this podcast and to make it more than just an introduction to each in-series production. So here goes, a podcast that is about sharing ideas and thoughts, but which is really about trying to maintain connection with our in-series family, with you. Before the seriousness of these times was really upon us, I took the opportunity to do another thing that I rarely have time for, and to share a dinner, a purely social dinner, with uh, my dear friend Dr. Fatima Keshvarez, one of the world's great Rumi scholars, and for those of you who attended our director's salon for the tale of Zerse, uh, you'll remember that she was one of the panelists. Fatima hosts one of the most empowering and inspirational podcasts I know of called Radio Rumi, where she explores the work of the great Sufi mystic, but connects it to um, the everydayness that that, um, affects our lives in profound and meaningful ways that we might not be aware of. Uh, I'm in awe of her for this podcast, and she told me that evening that she does it completely unscripted. This was and is uh, amazing to me, and at the time it seemed impossible for me to comprehend, and yet here I am about to go off script and just talk about the things that have been in my mind. So uh, with all forgiveness is asked, here goes. 
Uh, I started uh, this podcast quoting Shakespeare, of course, uh, and a line from The Tempest, which which has come up a lot this season because, of course, we presented Stormy Weather, which was an interrogation of Shakespeare's final play, masterpiece, we could say. Um, and it's a line that Miranda says to Prospero when she sees uh, other humans, sees men for the first time, and she says, Oh, brave new world. Uh, but actually, the line which sticks with me is the response that Prospero gives to her for this. He says, "'Tis new to thee." meaning it isn't new at all. Nothing is new at all. And, and of course, King Lear, Shakespeare's other great play, um, and sort of the sister of, of The Tempest in many ways, is a big part of, of in-series. And my time at in-series, as we opened, and much of our recent success can be credited to a production called Viva Verdi, which was uh, Verdi's Requiem mixed with um, a staging of Harvard professor Marjorie Garber's uh, chapter on King Lear. Uh, and there's another line which, which pops to mind from that play, which is, we are not the first who with best meaning have incurred the worst. And this idea that uh, nothing is new, and that we are not the first to go through times like this, um, I do find comforting. Uh, at a time like this, and I find it a refrain that is uh, returning through through a lot of my work this week. Uh, I do some work outside of in series. I take uh, a few productions a year that I find um, per per particularly meaningful and which aren't the sort of work I would ever have the opportunity to do with in series. Uh, and last year, one of these was Handel's uh, final, almost final, Oratorio Theodora which is uh, particularly powerful and meaningful to me. And I did this at the Staunton Music Festival, which is in Staunton, Virginia, very close to, to where I grew up. Uh, and I'll be returning this year to do a staging of Handel's Orlando, uh, which is an opera based on the epic poem by Ariosto, Orlando Furioso. So I've taken the opportunity this week with, lot, with lots of time on my hand uh, at the, at the house to think about Orlando Furioso and why it matters, uh, which leads, uh, of course, to a consideration of why epics matter. Why do we continue to write poetic epics? Um, and it, it seems to me obvious, no doubt, uh, that epics are written to deal with uh, things that happen to us as, as a people, to mankind. To the globe, even um, that would otherwise be too painful to consider and too difficult to make sense of. And poetry, like music, is a place where uh, an understanding can be reached that uh, that words can be part of of that understanding, whereas uh, normally they could not be. We think of the Mahabharata, the great Indian epic, uh, the first great epic, the longest epic, uh, uh, and how it deals with what it means for brother to kill brother, for people to be at war. Uh, and it, it puts this uh, consideration in context uh, of an actual battle that was fought. 
And I think in many ways the same could be said for uh, the epic which forms the base of all Western culture, which is, of course, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, uh, making sense of a horrible and senseless war um, that went on for 10 years um, and killed not not even a generation, but an entire society um, with the burning of Troy. And, and, and the Odyssey, of course, deals with the 10 years it took to get home. And it's really, of course, about um, the war we take home with us and how war continues to uh, affect, deteriorate uh, a society, even upon its completion, and, and particularly how it um, destroys the lives of those who live as well as those who died. Uh, and then, of course, the, the great uh, Greek play cycles and Oedipus, which, like the times we're living in, is actually dealing with a plague and why the society is plagued and tries to get to the bottom of human suffering um, through these, these great poems, which are plays. Uh, and, and there are others, of course. Um, and Orlando Furioso is one of those which deals with the great hero Orlando, which in English, of course, is Roland. It is a long poetic version of the Song of Roland, which is a medieval, um, medieval sung epic, uh, which is dealing with the Crusades, uh, just like the other uh, great epic poem dealing with the Crusades, which is, of course, um, Jerusalem Liberata, Jerusalem Liberated by Tasso, and Orlando Furioso is by Ariasto. Uh, and uh, for those of you that know your opera, there are countless operas uh, based on Orlando Furioso. In Handel's own canon, there is also Aria Dante, there is Alcina, Vivaldi wrote a ton, Haydn, Handel, uh, Mozart even. It forms the base of, of enlightened, in heavy quotes, uh, Western civilization. Um, and I think part of that is because it is dealing with the moment in Western civilization. And by moment, I mean a big moment, because of course there are three crusades, um, uh, where the West had to confront its own failures, the failure of its religion, the failure of its economics, the failure of its uh, ethics, morality, uh, and turned to, to poetry to do that. And from the destruction, which was the Crusades, from which many, many terrible things came, also came um, great beauty that, that, um, that grew out of the soil of, of these, these epic poems. Another one, and I hope now you'll see where my babble are going, is, of course, the Decameron by Giovanni Boccaccio. Uh, which has been very much in my head these days because the Decameron, um, for those of you that don't know it, is a epic poem in Italian uh, written in the early 14th century um, that is a frame narrative. It is very much the Italian Canterbury Tales. Of course, the Canterbury Tales has a frame narrative, which is that a group of pilgrims are traveling, are making the pilgrimage to Canterbury. And on the way, they tell each other stories um, stories that are themselves taken up later by musicians and writers and become the source material for um, a whole garden of Western culture, even so far as musical groups. If you 
if you don't know the the name Chanticleer, which of, of course is the famous um, male choir out of San Francisco, Chanticleer is the name of a rooster uh, from one of the stories of the Canterbury Tales. Um, the Decameron is also a frame narrative, and the narrative of it is a group of um, seven women are praying together in the church of Santa Maria Novella in in uh, Florence, which is which is one of the great great churches in the city, and which has a Giotto crucifix and um, the first single point perspective piece of art um, and the Ghirlandaio um, frescoes, one of which we used as a cover image for our uh, L'Enfance de Christ, which was the, the Massacre of the Innocents. Um, and in this church, when it was still fairly new in the, 13, in the 14th century, Boccaccio imagines a group of seven women meeting to pray, and they are praying because the city of Florence is uh, stricken with a plague a plague which we now know to be bubonic, but a plague which passed understanding, uh, which ripped society apart in, um, in ways which were unimaginable then as they would be unimaginable now. And this group of women decide that um, houses within the surrounding area have been emptied of their occupants who have either died or fled. Um, and that they should go and uh, occupy one of these houses, lock it up, and hide from the plague, that they should practice social distancing, as it were. And not wanting to go unaccompanied, uh, they accost, it must be said, three men, three young men who come to pray in the church and convince them to go with them, and together the ten young people uh, go off into Fiesole, which is a, a hill near Florence, and um, find an abandoned villa, and they go in and they shut the doors. Um, it is not accidental that this seems a bit scandalous, um, and that there's the mixture of young men and young women locked up in a house in a place where there are no chaperones. Um, and Boccaccio, though he's a great storyteller, also knew how to sell books. So that is there. Um, these ten people, they, they shut themselves off in the villa, and to pass the time, each day they tell stories. And each day they tell ten stories for ten days, which means a hundred stories. So the Decameron is a collection of 100 stories. And these stories um, form the basis for a lot of the works of art, of culture, of cultural references that would um, populate uh, the, the humanities even, even unto today. Um, and it's true that the Decameron isn't uniquely dealing with um, elevated issues. It isn't um, uh, the divine comedy in that sense. It could be said that it's similar to Jerusalem Liberator or Lando Furioso, which have stories of love and betrayal and um, erotic stories as well, um, even more so in the Decameron. It is uh, supposed to tantalize a bit. It is uh, romantic in all senses of the world. But it is also teaching us something, which I think is that in times like 
then, times like today, these are moments where uh, we look inward. I said earlier that um, that which we have to fear now most comes from inside. Fear comes with from within ourselves. Isolation comes from within ourselves. But also the solutions for these problems come from within ourselves. And the Decameron teaches us that in times like this, we we must go inside. And in there, we make the stuff which abides, the stuff which keeps us going spiritually, psychologically, and the stuff which, it must be said, makes life worth living. Uh, we make stories. Uh, we create the stories which will sustain us on the other side of darkness. Um, and that's, that's why the Decameron, I think, is so important. Uh, and it's given birth to, to numerous stories which have become operas. Perhaps it's less known, or those themes are less known than the Orlando Furioso characters of Bradamante and Ruggiero and Alcina and Ariadante and Ginevra and um, all, those, all those great characters, um, Rinaldo. Uh, no, I'm mistaken. Rinaldo comes from Tasso, from the, the Jerusalem Liberato. Um, the Decameron doesn't have stories of that fame, but it has created operas which which are lesser known but very important. One of these, of course, is the story of Egisto, which um, gives birth to two operas, one little known and one even littler known. Uh, the first is, of course, Cavalli's Egisto, which was a big big hit when it was revived on the stage of Glyndebourne with Janet Baker in the 19, uh, 1960s, directed by Raymond Lepard, who just passed this year. Um, and the other is an opera, which which I mention only this as a tangent, it's an opera called Chi Soffre Speri, which means he who suffers hopes, um, or that there is hope in suffering. The title alone, I think we can find great great meaning and comfort in today. Um, it's a wonderful opera. It was written in Rome. There were very few operas written in Rome in the 17th century because there was a ban on um, theaters. But there was a cardinal named Giulio Rospoliosi who wrote libretti, and he later became pope. And while he was a cardinal, he wrote these and funded their performance. And one of them um, is called Chi um, and it is the collaboration of two uh, composers. One is Marazzoli and one is Marocchi. Um, and it's unique because it was written for singers, but it was also written for um, comic actors, we believe, an actual troupe of Commedia dell'arte performers who arrived during the carnival season in Rome and were paid to participate in this opera. And in original Commedia dell'arte, each character comes from a different area in uh, within Italy. So um, Harlequin uh, comes from uh, Bergamo. Uh, uh, Pantalone is, of course, uh, Venetian. Um, one of the characters is Neapolitan. So in a real Commedia dell'arte performance, as it would originally have been seen, each character uh, would speak in a different Italian dialect. Um, now, of course, Tuscan one, Tuscan is Italian, but Italy, uh, even until, um, well, even when I was living in Venice in the, in the early 2000s, you still heard Venetian. These languages were still spoken, and, and it wasn't until Dante that a, a real Tuscan language started to, to codify. 
uh, there's only one score of this, the original, the handwritten score, which is in the Vatican Library, and, and uh, I once had the, the opportunity to go and study the score, and uh, one of my strongest memories of my time in Italy is having the score of Chiso Respiri in front of me, open, and being surrounded by, I don't know, six or seven uh, Italian uh, dialect to modern Italian dictionaries trying to understand, trying to translate the piece because each character is written in a, a different language. Um, something quite, uh, quite beautiful and quite uh, unlike anything we would see today. The most famous story from the Decameron is the final story. Uh, the story known as Griselda, uh, after its main character. It is the culmination of the entire work. Um, it's a story which is difficult to understand, uh, and the morality of it is difficult, and what it's trying to tell us is difficult. In brief, there is a count who, uh, uh, or a ruler of a land who needs to get married. His people insist on him getting married. And he agrees to do this, uh, even though he doesn't want to be wed, on the condition that they will not ask any um, question or pass any judgment. He gets to choose whoever he wants to marry. He goes to a near town. He finds uh, a peasant, uh, the daughter of a, of a, a laborer, um, a peasant girl named Griselda and he asks to marry her and she says yes and he ruthlessly mistreats her for the next well, I don't know um, 15 20 years um, he is he treats her as a servant he treats her terribly um, they have a child he sends the child away. He tells her he's killed the child. Um, he actually sends the child to be raised by someone else. Um, then he, uh, years later, he tells Griselda that he, he doesn't want her anymore. He's going to take a new wife. He brings this beautiful young lady. Um, and uh, through all of this, Griselda makes no complaint. She just says yes. Um, her heart is broken, but she wants what's best for him. She respects his happiness. Um, and uh, finally, in, at, the, at the high point of the story, he reveals um, that this has all been for show to test her love of him, her commitment to him. The girl, the woman who he intends to marry is actually their long-lost daughter. And the family comes together and uh, everyone in the land celebrates you can see why this is a difficult story to deal with. Um, and it uh, is often explained um, as not a story about man and woman, um, but actually a story about uh, Christ and the church, or God and the church, God and mankind, that those things which we suffer in life, um, like the plague, that they were suffering in the Decameron, um, are tests, are trials that we go through, that we endure to come out with more joy and more, um, a more well-proportioned soul, as it were.
um, that doesn't necessarily make the story easier to deal with. And I've always found fault with that Christ allegory reading of the piece, though it must be said that very well could have been Boccaccio's intention in writing these. And perhaps all these stories have what is both a deep spiritual and an earthly meaning. And Boccaccio is brilliantly playing with the line or the lack of a line between the profane and the sacred. Um, another reading of the story is that the Count is actually making a world in which the uh, his his love Griselda is more able to to survive and to prosper um, because the people in the land would surely have rejected her if he had not been able to show the full extent of her fidelity and her love for him and that what she's actually doing uh, what he's actually doing is making it so that their love will last and be eternal still not without its problems but i i do prefer this reading that he is perfecting the context within which griselda lives um, and should we choose perhaps the the trial we're living through now is also a way to perfect the world and to make a place that is better for us and for those around us for our our human family um this story uh has been treated a few times there's a i think it's a cantata it might be an opera by scarlatti um the father not the son <laughs> uh of keyboard music fame. Uh, his father was a great uh, opera composer. Um, and it's also an opera by Vivaldi. Um, uh, this is an opera which is rarely staged. Uh, I almost staged it a few years ago, but I have not had the chance to do with it. Um, Peter Sellers, who who's my mentor, uh, staged it a number of years ago at the Santa Fe Festival. Um, I, I haven't I didn't get a chance to see the production. I regret that it is I know he stages it as a quinceanera as a 15th birthday party for the uh, young girl uh, and uh, for obvious reasons that that's a brilliant read on it and the mother Griselda uh, having to prepare for the quinceanera of this young girl who who is actually her daughter. I know one of the problems, we should we say problems cavalierly, one of the challenges we find with the opera is that it doesn't have uh, an aria for Griselda, who's a contralto, um, and Peter placed in it a an aria from Vivaldi's um, mezzo version of the Stabat Mater. Um, which, which sounds to me like it must have been absolutely brilliant. Many of you may know music from this opera um, because it has a very famous aria called Agitata da Due Venti, um, Thrown Between Two Winds, uh, which is sung by um, one of the characters and was performed in concert very famously by Cecilia Bartoli. Um, uh, if, you, if you haven't seen it, take a chance to, to look this up on YouTube. It's her concert from the Teatro Olimpico um, and she she performs this at rapid fire speed it's absolutely spectacular it became so famous that a young countertenor at uh, I think studying at Northwestern it might have been Roosevelt in Chicago anyway um, performed on his senior recital uh, 
this piece dressed as Cecilia Bartoli, doing a perfect impersonation of her um, quirky method of singing, um, though beautiful, though spectacular. Uh, and he himself was spectacular. And this became such a sensation on YouTube that he uh, was offered um, performances in Europe and now has a, a quite wonderful career. His name is Justin Kim, um, and he's now one of the one of the leading countertenors of, of, of the, the young crop, which I suppose is a generation. Um, there's another aria from this opera that uh, that that I do want to play for you. I, I have never played music on here, um, but uh, I'm going to now. I'm going to sort of end with this and then do a, a sign off at the afterwards. Um, this is an opera called Vede Or Orgogliosa Londa, um, and it is uh, it came to my mind only because I was going to talk about Griselda, and this is my favorite aria from Griselda, but actually the text of it is particularly powerful um, in a time in a time like this. So I'm just going to take the opportunity to to read a my my paraphrase translation of of the aria which is see the wave looks proudly upon the turbulent sea and even the beautiful shore is unafraid so the loving soul does not have fear but continues to hope to find itself within a beautiful fate um hopeful words comforting words i hope uh, the aria is not short, it's about eight minutes long, but it is so surprising and beautiful and stunning that I'm going to play it in its entirety, and, and I hope you're at a place that you can, that you can sit and close your eyes and, and listen and, and use it as an opportunity to remember what beauty exists in the world, even and especially in times that are otherwise frightening and lonely. This performance is, is sung by an Austrian soprano named Simone Kermes. She doesn't work much in the United States. She um, um, is a wild performer. And, and I saw her first, when I, the very first day that I arrived in, in Italy for the first time, um, I went to a concert uh, by... Um, uh, by Alan Curtis's group. It was a performance of Rodolinda, if I remember, and Simone Kermes was the soprano lead, and the mezzo lead was a young, virtually unknown mezzo-soprano named Joyce DiDonato. Um, and at that time, we all rode on the bus together. I went to a recording session with them the next day, and I sat next to Joyce and got to talk to her, something which would never happen today, um, but it's, it's one of my one of my favorite memories. So here um, I'm playing this recording, Vede um, uh, L'Orgoglioso Londa by Vivaldi from the opera Griselda.
there. I hope, I hope that brought some, some beauty, some path into to a a different space inside yourselves um, to to find uh, hope and and strength for today. Uh, I always end these podcasts by paraphrasing a quote from Rabindranath Tagore's essay, Creative Unity. Today I thought I'd read the entire phrase uh, from that essay, which is the opening of it, uh, and it, it goes like this, Civility is beauty of behavior. It requires for its perfection patience, self-control, and an environment of leisure. For genuine courtesy is a creation, like pictures, like music. It is a harmonious blending of voice, gesture, and movement, action, and words, in which generosity of conduct is expressed. It reveals the man himself and has no ulterior purpose. In times like these, and I say that as if I've lived through times like these, but of course none of us has, but in times like these, I think civility looks like maintaining connection with each other. And in doing that, dispelling isolation and fear. So, until next time, which I promise to be next week, Rabindranath Tagore tells us that civility is the first work of art. We are all art makers. You are an artist. Find connection, make your lives civil, and bring beauty into the world.